would take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Uh, in our last message, in verses 7 through 11, we examined the truth that John impressively made so vivid to love one another over and over again. God's Word reiterates this theme, and John reminds us as believers that hatred for our brothers and sisters in Christ and our love for Christ cannot mix. You can't say, I love God and not love those around us as our brothers and sisters in Christ. The two concepts don't mix. And John further tells us that if you have hatred in your heart toward a brother, you're still walking in darkness, and your eyes have been blinded, and you cannot see where you're going. And the stern word should cause us to examine our lives. And I hope that maybe this week we had an opportunity to really show our love, to express our love for one another, as uh, God has so incredibly loved us over and over again every day of our lives. And so, at any rate, as we come into verses 12 through 17, as we examine this next text of Scripture, we're reminded of two thoughts. First, we're reminded that as fathers, children, and young men, we've overcome the evil one. Uh, his writing is from the perspective that we've already won. We have the victory. It's within our reach. It's within the, uh, the realm of possibility to live in victory as ones that overcome the evil one. So he's writing from the perspective that we've already won. And secondly, we are reminded of how we should live and conduct our lives in the present world that we're in. And so uh, some of you are wondering, what's the handout inside our Sunday bulletins? Well, I actually went out of the way and made notes this week, so don't get used to it. I may not do that every week, but uh, it just gives you something to follow along with, and really it's something that you can come back to and look at as we go on our way. But first of all, verses 12 through 14 are, to some extent, standalone verses. Uh, these verses do not necessarily connect with the verses that come prior to these, this text, and they don't really necessarily highlight what is about to come. So what John is about to say is that these are just three groups of people that need to understand something about each of these groups. So each of these specific groups have a bit of distinctiveness about them. But before we get into them, let's just take a moment and pray, ask God's blessing on the message, and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we thank you once again for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. And I pray, God, that as we work our way through 1 John, I ask God that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, give us those things that we need to know. Lord, maybe we've heard it before, but Lord, maybe we need a reminder of how we can apply them. But Lord, I also just pray that, Lord, maybe there are things that we haven't heard before that maybe we need to take special note of and apply to our hearts and our lives. Lord, may your spirit help us to do that this day. And Lord, we'll give you the praise and the glory for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, if you would, follow along as I begin reading verses 12 through 17, and then we'll start breaking it apart a little bit, if you will. Verse 12 says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. And then the second part of this text is verses 15 through 70. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So verse 12, the first point that John makes in this section of text is, so, is to little children. 
to remind them that their sins are forgiven. The phrase little children used in this verse is a general term referring to the body of believers. Uh, specifically, the more specific term children used in this verse, uh, verse 13, refers to an age or state of a person. So there's a little bit of difference between the little children and then the children in verse 13. So in using the general term, I believe that John is addressing God's people as a whole. And the message that he addresses to them is awesome. He makes no bones about it. Your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. What greater victory can be had than that? You know, it'd be a narcissistic God who sits on the throne of heaven who would say, be holy as I am holy, but by the way, you'll never do it. Don't sin, but don't realize that you're never going to be able to be sinless. Uh, Be holy, but you're never going to get there. See, God not only tells us a command, He not only exemplified it in His Son, Jesus Christ, but He gives us the wherewithal to walk in those areas of victory. He gives us the ability, when we are filled with the Spirit, to live a holy and righteous life, right? He gives us the ability to overcome sin, because He says, greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. He gave us the ability, because when He shed His blood on the cross of Calvary, He gave us the ability to walk in forgiveness. And we have that right as His children, as part of the family of God, to live in forgiveness. So He reminds us that our sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, for His name's sake. He's our Father. In verses 13 and 14, as we look at these next two verses, John uses two forms of the word right. In verse 13, John says, I am writing. And in verse 14, John says, I write. Or in some translation, I have written. So what's the difference? When John says, I am writing, we understand that John is coming from his own perspective. He said, this is what I am writing to you. And then the reader has a perspective of what they're understanding John to have written. And the reality is this. John was filled with the Holy Spirit, written what God had told him to write, so that it would be for our good, so that we can know our Heavenly Father. But he goes on to say the shorter phrase, I write, refers to the reader's perspective once they've received what was written. And the emphasis John uses here in these verses gives assurance of their belonging to God's family. And if you know Jesus, you belong. Isn't that awesome? You belong to God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he really reiterates this fact over and over. He says that you are bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body and spirit, which are what? His. We belong to the Heavenly Father. He loves you and me. And because of that, we can walk in victory as He wants us to. But specifically, he addresses these three groups found here in the text. Fathers, young men, and children. And there is something distinctly different about each of these groups, right? Uh, from John's perspective, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. And of course, that's the same perspective as the readers, that we know him. We've heard. We know the stories. We've heard the messages. God has always been. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And we're reminded of the fact that we know him. To young men, he says, you have overcome the evil one. From the reader's perspective, it was, you're strong and the Word of God abides in you. So there's something interesting about this. You have overcome the evil one. Why? When we think of young men, what is the thing that we think about in referring to young men? Their strength, their energy, their vigor. And they have the ability to overcome because of that strength. And it says you are strong and the word of God abides in you. So it's the idea here that there is a relationship. We're spending time with God. We're abiding in Him. And He's abiding in us. We are walking together in fellowship one with the other. 
And then children, you know the Father, but you are still growing. So fathers, they know God and have an intimate relationship with God, and they are mature in God and, the, and, and uh, possess life experiences. Here's the thing. Some of you older men, you're not as strong as you once were. That's reality. In fact, we've learned, as the phrase goes, not to work harder, but to work smarter, right? Why? Because we don't always have the strength. I can remember times when I was younger that if I needed to get something done, I would just horse my way through it. If I need something moved, I didn't care about waiting for two other people to help me. I would just put my back into it and ram the thing till I got it moved across the floor, right? I mean, it doesn't matter because when you're young, you don't really think about how your back is going to hurt later. You don't think about how your knees are going to hurt later. You just want to get the thing done. You have strength. But as we get older, we realize that the strength of our youth is not necessarily the strength of our old age. But now we have what? Life experiences. And now we are beginning to apply the principles of not working harder, but working smarter. I'll wait until I get a dolly. I'll wait until I get a strap. I'll wait until I get one more person, right? Because it makes it easier. And actually, in the long run, it's probably much better. But there's life experiences added to the knowledge of what we've attained through the years. So fathers, they know God, have an intimate relationship with God, and they're mature in God, but possess life experiences. Young men, they're conquerors. They've overcome. Why? Because of the strength, the energy. Their weapon is in the Word that abides in them, and they have some maturing yet to do. And then there's children. They know God, but are very immature. They have need to grow in their faith. And so that's a very important thing to consider. So here is the picture of God's family. Some are still very much like children. So others have grown old in the faith. And still others, the young men, are quite strong, but still have some growing to do, some maturing to do. They all know God, but John felt it necessary to exhort them to not think the world precious. And that was the translation of verse 15 from Kenneth Weiss in his commentary on the Bible. He says, do not think the world more precious. So we need to keep our eyes and focus on the heavenly rather than on the earthly. So as we continue in the next text of Scripture, John does not pull any punches in verses 15 through 17. He doesn't mince any words. He very simply, boldly exhorts his readers of several things. And we'll call the text of Scripture in John, uh, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, the Orchard of Desires. And as you see this on the, on the screen behind me, you're going to see three different trees that represent three different fruits in this Orchard of Desires. And the three fruits that grow in the orchard of desires is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You say, well, Pastor, those are things that are in the world. In fact, he tells us very clearly in our text in 1 John that all that is in the world, all, not just some of the world, not just parts of the world, he says all that is in this world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so we need to guard ourselves lest we continue to cultivate the orchard of desires in the wrong fashion. All of these fruits have very specific soil that they grow best in. And we're going to talk about what that soil is in a few moments. But all of these fruits have a specific source from which they stem. According to verse 15, John is not referring to the physical creation here in this verse. John is referring to the world's system of thinking, its philosophies, its mentalities, its values, its priorities. And we have to remember to set our affections, according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, on things that are above, not on things of this earth. 
But remember, it is so easy to get focused on what is around us, what we deal with on a regular basis, what we see every day with our own eyes, right? He says to set our affections on things above, not our things of this earth. So when he's talking about our affections, he is once again referring to our emotions, our thinking, our way of, uh, uh, of thinking, our thought processes, uh, our patterns of how we reason and so forth with the things that we are encountering every day of our lives in this world that we live in. So consider James chapter 4, verse 4, and in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. First one, John, or James 4, 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You think that just for a moment, that adultery is really a, a terrible word, right? When we think of adultery, we, nothing good comes to our minds. When we think of being faithful and being committed to our spouse for a lifetime, that's what we want to, to realize. That's what we want to come to fruition in relationships of life. But when we hear the word adultery, that means that somebody has not been what? Faithful. In James chapter 4, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or at war, almost speaking, of a relationship with God? So what's he saying here to those of us who know Jesus Christ? When you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and you have a relationship with Him, we are to be committed to Him and Him alone. So when we take our focus and our commitments off God and put them on the things of this world, we are beginning to start in an adulterous affair with the world. An adulterous affair. Why? Because our commitment is supposed to be to God and we're putting it on the things of this world. And he says, if you do that... It's almost as though you are starting a war with God. He says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. So we need to be careful that we're not putting our affections, our way of thinking, our thought patterns, solely on the things of this world more than we are in a commitment with Jesus Christ. And then in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he says this, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in power of the evil one. The world around us that does not know Jesus Christ is under the auspice, underneath the, uh, uh, as it were, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Underneath the, uh, the focus and attention and, and the temptation of the evil one. And we need to guard against that. If one demonstrates by his life that he loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, in other words, the very fact of God's love and what God's love demands does captivate him. But he still chooses to live for the things that only this life can offer. That's enmity with God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, through 5, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So if we are going to have a life that is committed to God, that means we must bring every thought into captivity to a walk in life, a pattern of thinking for God. It's amazing to me. The power of the enemy is very evident around us, is it not? I mean, just look around us. You can tell by the way people think, and, th- and the way people think leads to how they act, that there is influence, that's the word I'm looking for, influence from the evil one in their lives. And we have to guard against that. And here's the thing. We talked about this before, and it's something we mentioned from a few weeks ago at our men's night. We need to keep the battle vertical, not horizontal. Think about this just for a moment. 
if I don't like the way you think, and you don't like the way I think, the battle is, ver- is horizontal. I can't usually change your mind any more than you can change my mind. And I've never been in a hand- knockdown drag out argument that brought glory to God. Right? Our flesh wants to fight what we disagree with. But the best thing we can do is fight God or fight our enemies on our knees as we're praying to God. Keep the battle vertical. Because he says, the, we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and everything that high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity. How are you doing with bringing every thought into captivity? I don't know about you, but I have to go in like, like stages. Because I'll make up my mind that I'm going to have the right thoughts, I'm going to have the right attitudes, I'm going to have the right actions. And all of a sudden I'll hear something on the news and it's like, oh. Or I'll be in a conversation with somebody and somebody will let something slip and it's like, oh, I didn't need to know that. It only takes a millisecond, right? A millisecond. To all of a sudden get what we are thinking, what we've committed to God to be out of focus and distracted. Bringing every thought. Well, we said in the Orchard of Desires, there are really three fruits that grow in this orchard. And the first one is the lust of the flesh. Well, what is this? This has to do with areas of morality. In essence, the lust of the flesh could be characterized by shameful appetites. You know, there are, shame, there are appetites that are only meant to be fulfilled in the right context. It's not wrong to have a desire to have an intimate relationship with a woman, but what's the right context or a spouse in the confines of marriage? So to have the right appetites in the wrong context is sinfulness before God. And that's what the lust of the flesh has to deal with. It has to deal with shameful appetites. We won't take the time to look at it, but in Proverbs chapter 7, you see the whole uh, story of how the wicked one lures people into herself. And really, there are three or four key words in that text in Proverbs 7. It talks about the look. It talks about what was took. It talks about what they saw and what they desired. These are things that if we're not careful, if they're not put in check according to God's word, we'll be led astray. We'll be distracted by these things. But notice these words, look, saw, took, etc. Every day there are choices. And we need to guard our hearts and minds so that we can make right choices in pleasing God. Because we do not want to cultivate a fruit dealing with morality, and shameful appetites. And when we think of morals, we're living in a time frame where morals are being pushed down. In fact, we're living in a day where, we, where many people say, well, there are no absolutes. There are absolutely absolutes. And when I say that there are no absolutes, we're saying that, once again, there's an absolute. It's in God's Word. So we have a moral objective that we can live our lives according to. And it's found in God's Word. But in the world that we live in, we want to suppress the Word of God and really put our moral ethics and the way we think according to what we feel, what our own opinions are, and what I believe, not, not what God's Word says. And so we want to be careful that we do not cultivate this orchard of desires in the area of the lust of the flesh. So every day there's choices. And those choices are important because the, the choices that we make will determine whether or not we please God or please self. Well, there's a second fruit that grows in the orchard of desires, and that's the lust of the eyes. 
Well, what is this? And well, in essence, the lust of the eyes could be characterized by a showy appearance. I mean, I want to give an appearance that, hey, everything's great. And so many Christians, unless you think that's not part of your life, I think it is more than we want to admit. We walk into church week after week and we say, hey, how's it going? Pat answer is, fine, great, wonderful. Because we don't want to give any air that things are not just fine, great, and wonderful. We don't talk about the struggles at work. We don't talk about the sinfulness that we indulged in over the week. And we don't talk about the lies that we might have told. We don't talk about the little things that we stole across the counter because it wasn't that big of a deal. We don't, we don't talk about those things because we want to give the air that everything is good. We want to give the appearance that things are just fine. But it really has to do with materialism, too. The world knows how to package and merchandise all that and, and merchandise everything that it offers, right? I mean, think about it. You're never going to go to a, a car lot and, and, and you know, find it full of you know, dirt and grime and grub and you know, soil all over the seats. No, they clean it all up, make it look nice, because that's what we want to show. You go to the store, I mean, it's not just piled. Hey, by the way, all the canned goods are just in those boxes over there. No, they, they wanted to put them nicely on the shelf so that you can go and grab them. And the better it looks, the more appealing it is to the eye, the more we're going to sell the world knows how to package what it's trying to sell. And so often we watch TV, we watch the sitcoms, and boy, you know, everyone's in a relationship, living together, doing this and doing that, and well, you know, there's no moral objective, so we can do whatever we want. We just want to give the appearance that everything's great. I'd love to see the first sitcom where someone's living paycheck to paycheck and can't quite make it. I'd love to see the sitcom where they're driving a bunch of beater cars and, and the cars are breaking down all the time. But you don't see that in sitcoms. It's all about what we want people to see what we want them to think. It's about materialism. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, he says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, there are several key words that we can see. It's words like look, and it's been often called the look that made one took. And uh, the reality is we have to guard what our eyes are viewing. In uh, Joshua chapter 7, verse 20 and 21, And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. The look that caused the talk, as one said. We need to make sure that we are guarding our eyes. And he goes on to say, And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. The bottom line is this, folks. There's a lot of things that you can view that no one else knows that you're viewing, but God knows. And what we view is important to our relationship with Him and who we're pleasing. Because if we continue to look at the wrong things. Because remember, what we look at, what we think about, determines how we act and play that out in our lives later. Act, or what we view and what we think about leads to our actions. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof on the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold question has always been was it wrong to see no he walks out and there it is boom done what's the wrong part to dwell on it 
and to make it to make it to the point of member our thoughts tend to lead towards actions and if we don't bring every thought into captivity we're going to have wrong actions stemming from our wrong thoughts this is the lust of the eyes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 29, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with the, her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. I mean, he doesn't mince words. That wrong sight line of sights, wrong views can lead, learn to wrong actions, lead to wrong actions. And he says, if you're having wrong thoughts, you've already committed adultery. So how is this lived out? Very simply with our eyes. What are we looking at? What is demanding our focus? It's so important that we guard our eyes and that we look at, what we look at will become the foundation of our thoughts and then later our actions. The third fruit that grows in the orchard of desires is the pride of life. What is this? Well, it, pride of life asks the question, what are my motives? It could be characterized by shallow applause. Pride is concerned with what others think of me. Isn't that amazing how we are so concerned about what other people think of us? I've said many times over the years, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, if I should please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. The reality is, I'm not here to please other people. But yet, that becomes part of who we are so often because we don't want to you know, give the air that everything's not great, once again. My pride says, I want everyone to like me. I want everyone to appreciate me. I want everyone to applause me. And the pride of life really deals with this applause that we are getting from it. What is your motive behind what you do? Is it to get the applause? Is your motive to say, hey, I want everyone to like me and they will like me if I do X, Y, Z? The reality is, it has to do with our motives. So how is this lived out? It's often manifested by people who are striving to climb the ladder for the next position. They want to be able to be able to say, I'm in charge. Everyone has to listen to what I say. They have to do what I tell them. That's the pride of life. You see, in this orchard of desires, there are three fruits that if not cultivated and weeded out, they will take hold of your life and they'll strangle the good things that can come out of it. So we must guard against the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, in the orchard of desires, there's also things that happen with how we view life itself. The lust of the flesh is very concerned with experiencing pleasure, if you will. It craves getting the most fun out of and self-fulfillment out of life as it can. You know, here's an interesting thing. As we grow older... We all have a calendar that we live by, right? For the most part, we have a calendar. And on that calendar, we put things that are important, things that have to get done. But the reality is, the older we get, the social calendar becomes the list of doctor's appointments, right? It seems like it happens more and more as you get older. I, I hear some amens. You know? <laughs> but the reality is, when we're younger, it seems like the calendar is filled with the next best thing. You see it on Facebook sometimes. You know, this, this week they're in, uh, you know, in Disneyland, and next week they're in Colorado, and the next week they're in Michigan, and the next week they're here. They're always living for the next thing because life is about pleasure. It's about what I get to do, what I get to experience, what I get to talk about from what I you know, have done in the last week or the last month or the last year, how we can compare stories. It's all about pleasure. And if life is all about pleasure, 
then we're missing what the real purpose of life is, according to God's Word. It craves getting the most fun and self-fulfillment out of life as possible. Also, in the orchard of desires, in the lust of the eyes, it's concerned with getting more possessions. You know, here's an interesting thing. We see it on TV all the time. On TLC, there is a show called Hoarders. Now, there are, I think, two sides. And I know some people are like, oh, this is the most disgusting show ever. Every once in a while, you'll flip through the channels and you'll see it. And it's like, oh, nasty. How can that person live in there? But I found that there's really two sides to the show of hoarders. They're all hoarders, but, but here's the difference. Some hoarders just don't throw away trash. They're lazy. I mean, it would take no more effort to throw the trash in the garbage can versus throwing it on the floor. You're just lazy. But the other side I find a little more interesting. They will have 200 garments against the wall, and they still have the price tags on them. It's not really that they need it. They just wanted it. And as you, it's amazing, if you've ever watched an episode, they'll go in there and say, well, you don't really need these. Yeah, but I want them. Can we, can we take away just three of these? Oh, oh. And it's like there's this mental illness that takes over, and I just can't get rid of it. You have 200 garments with price tags on them. You've never worn them. You've never taken the tag off. But bless God, you're not getting rid of them. That's exactly what we're talking about here. It's the lust of the eyes. It's, it, it's concerned with getting more possessions. And the person caught up in the lust of the eyes loves to accumulate stuff and things. It's all about the getting. It's about the getting. And then in the orchard of desires, there's the pride of life. And the pride of life likes power. One caught up in the pride of life likes to call the shots, to be the decision maker as often as possible. It's important to them that, that they know that their authority is known by those around them. Even if it's not real or legitimate, they still want to give the impression that I'm in charge, I'm in control, I have the authority. And that's the pride of life. Going back to the orchard of desires in the lust of the flesh, the person who plants seed in the soil of the lust of the flesh has a desire to do. It's all about what I get to do. Because remember, later I get to talk about it. Later I get to share with everybody what I've done. And it concerns itself with the desire to do. And then when it comes to the lust of the eyes, the person who plants in this soil has a desire to have. One's not enough. Or if one is enough, it has to be the best one I can get. Or the best ones that I can get, the plural. But it's all about a desire to have. They've got to have this experience. They've got to have this good, this material wealth, this position. It's all about the desire to have. And then in the pride of life, the person who plants in this soil has a desire to be. To be. You see, all these fruits are really different from each other, but yet they're all really similar. Right? So... The lust of the flesh has to do with morality, which the world says morality is up to you. Whatever you decide is good for you, well, that's okay. The world says, hey, there's nothing wrong with having shameful appetites. I mean, uh, we, we talk about different countries and how they don't have a divorce rate like we do in America. But the reality is, no, they may not have the divorce rate, but the adultery is rampant. I've seen that in parts of India. I've seen that in parts of Africa. We don't have the divorce rate, but trust me, the sin is there. 
it's hidden. The lust of the flesh has a desire for pleasure, and there's no restraint to it. It's whatever I want to get involved with. It, it, it's, it's the desire to do so I can talk about it. The orchard of desires in, in the fruit of material, uh, of the lust of the eyes is materialism. It's all about what I can accumulate. It's the appearance. I have it all together. And everyone knows what I have. They know that I've got not just one car, but I've got three new cars. I don't just have a home. I have a nice home. I don't just have a bank account. I have a fat bank account. I'm going to make sure you know about it. I don't just have this. I have this. It's all about materialism. It's about the possessions and the desire to have, and there's never enough. And then in the pride of life, it really has to do with their motives. The shallow applause, and that's what it is, shallow. Because I'm really worried about what I'm making them think. And the power, whether it's real or perceived, it's my power and the desire to be, even though it may not be real. So you might be wondering, what is the soil of all these fruits? The soil for each of these fruits is very simply selfishness. It's selfishness. Tell me that when one has a orchard filled full of the lust of the flesh, it's not selfish. Tell me when there's lust of the eyes that it's not selfish. I want what you have, and so forth. Tell me that when there's not pride, it's not rooted in selfishness. God's Word is full of verses that deal with the pride and how it's an abomination to God. And you know what the middle letter of pride is? I. Because it's all about me. It's all about what I think, what I believe is important, what I want others to think, so forth. The soil is selfishness. And it's something that each and every one of us must battle. It's something that each and every one of us must determine in our hearts that we're not going to let anything grow out of a root of selfishness because it will destroy. It's all about what pleases me. Well, the source of selfishness is really sin. It's sin. We're people who, we don't like to admit it, but there's a sin that we're born with. In Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The source for all these fruits in the orchard of desires is obviously our sin nature that we're all born with. So you might be thinking to yourself, what is the solution? How can I overcome these sinful fruits in the orchard of desires? Well, notice what God's Word tells us. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, it says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. This verse is so simple, but yet difficult to obey sometimes. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. You see, if the lusts are all about shameful appetites, we, we know this. If I'm going home this way and there's a liquor store on the way home and I know that I'm struggling with too much alcohol, the reality is I should probably take a different route home. Right? That's putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and not making provision for the flesh. My flesh wants the alcohol, but I know if I go that way, I'm going to be tempted to stop there. I had someone come to me years ago, and they said, Pastor, I really have a problem with gambling. I said, really? I said, well, where, where do you, how, do you, how do you do it? Well, I go to uh, the Finger Lakes Casino, and I, you know, I, I give thousands and thousands and thousands. I said, well, where else do you go? Well, I go to the gas station, buy all the scratch-offs and this, and I just waste thousands and thousands, literally thousands of dollars per year. And I said, well, this is really simple. 
God's Word says put on Jesus Christ and not make provision of the flesh. Don't go to the casino. Don't go. I can save you thousands of dollars if you just don't go. Well, i got to go get gas. I said, right. But you don't have to go inside to get gas. It's called a debit card. Right? Don't make provision for the flesh. If you know going a certain direction is going to cause you to make a poor decision, it's going to cause you to sin, don't go there. He said with every temptation that, we, that, that, that comes to us in, as a man, in 1 Corinthians 10.13, he says there is a way of escape. There is a way of escape. And you know what I found out? Most of the time it's just simply saying no. Don't make provision for the flesh. If you know that going this direction is going to cause you to do it, don't do it. I even went one step further. I said, so you go inside the gas station from time to time. You buy your lotto tickets or whatever it is that you buy, the scratch house, whatever. I said, I can help you with that too. Just take a little tiny piece of paper and fold it in half. And then put your debit card inside that piece of paper. And on the outside of that little piece of paper, that's just a couple inches wide, just no bigger than your credit card, that you folded in half, put the credit card into, I said, write these words on it. Well, buying this object helped me glorify God. And on the other side of it, I said, well, spending the money on this object helped me bring glory to God. I said, every time you take that credit card out, you have to ask that question. So a little bit later, that person came to me and says, oh, I'm back at it again. I said, where's your debit card? Well, I took the piece of paper away because I was feeling guilty. <laughs> right? <laughs> but it worked. Don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts thereof. Galatians 5.16 also says, I say that a walk in the Spirit and you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So that means every day I have to make a choice. I'm going to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. There's only two choices, flesh or Spirit. And there's a choice as to which one I'm going to live in. Romans 8 talks a lot about that. And 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. See, here's the deal. I can't pursue righteousness and sinfulness at the same time. Because if my focus is on righteousness, well, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to live a life pleasing to God. I'm going to do what's right and holy in His sight. But if I want to fulfill the flesh, I'm going to keep my focus over here. It's a choice. When it comes to the lust of the eyes, Luke chapter 12, verse 15 says, And He said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. It's not in about what we can get. Some people live their entire life accumulating just because they can. And he says, life is not about the abundance of things we can possess. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, 10 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to, into many foolish and shame, harmful lusts which, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We have to understand that possessions can cause destruction. It's not 
wrong to have things. It's wrong for things to have you. There's a difference. I've known people who have much material wealth, but the wealth doesn't own them. I've known people who have a lot of things, and the things own them as well. I've known people who have a lot of things, and as soon as something breaks or somebody touches it or puts a scratch on it or bumps it in any way, they just freak out. Do you know how much that cost? Do you know what I had to do to get that? And it's all about what they got. It's not wrong to have things. It's wrong for things to have you. Because really, when things have us, they're ours. When we have the things that possess us and control us, that's not of God. We're just stewards of what God has allowed us to have. He has entrusted wealth to us. He's entrusted things to us. He's entrusted the things of his life to us to steward them well. And finally, the pride of life. What is the solution? Well, first of all, I want you to understand that pride is real, and pride causes destruction. You remember in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, it says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, and here it is, folks, and this is what will cause pride to overcome us. He says, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High God. Yet you shall be brought down to the shield to the lowest depths of the pit. A person caught up in the orchard of desires and specifically the fruit of the pride of life is all consumed with the mighty eye. And I is nothing more than selfishness and pride. And it causes destruction. This happens to the greatest of people. In Luke chapter 9, verse 46, says, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. I mean, these are people who walked with Jesus. Which of us will be greatest? Pride doesn't evade all of us. All of us have to deal with it at some point in our life. Um, just this morning, God kind of like, you dummy. I, I, my alarm went off at 7 o'clock. I reached over, hit my phone, stop, alarm was off. And I immediately, and this is what I did, immediately I said, Lord, it's going to be a long day. I'm going to two services. I hope people come. I want to be able to preach the word and have to do it with energy and life and passion, and, I, and God help me to have the right attitude and the right focus today. I pray God just help me to have the strength that I need, help me be an encouragement to others. And I stopped praying. I'm like, man, I just started the day the way I tell everyone else to start their day. Good job, Ken. Woo, good job. You did it. And it's like, you dummy. Now I got pride in the fact that I did it. I'm thinking pretty good of myself because I actually did what I'm telling everyone else to do. Oh my goodness, it only takes a millisecond to think greater of yourself than you ought. For just a moment, I'm thinking, yeah, I did it. What are you stupid? Pride. And it slips in that fast. What do you struggle with? Lust of the eyes? Having what's not yours? Trying to get what's not yours to take? Lust of the flesh. 
all about the pleasure that you can have for yourself and the desire to, you know, really just have and to do and to be able to talk about what you've accomplished, whatever it is. What, what, what's your struggle? You know, I don't have any. <laughs> you, you got some pride there? <laughs> I don't know. I just know that this orchard can often flourish very easily if we don't weed once in a while. Matthew chapter 27, verses, or 20, 27 to 29 says, And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I wonder how often we, we want to be served. But we also want to be in charge. But if we're going to overcome the pride of life, we have to realize it's not about us. It's about Him. And even as He exemplified in His own life, He didn't come to be served, but to serve. Not to get, but to give. If we will model that in our lives, we can overcome the pride of life. In James chapter 4, verse 16, He says, But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. It's so easy to look at others and say, well, I've got this all together. I'm not like them. I'm not like him or her. I, I don't do this. I don't do that. But look at me and who I am and what I have done and what I have accomplished. And it's easy to think highly of ourselves. So just by review, the lust of the flesh. It has to do with our morality. Our morals come from having a commitment to the Word of God. Our shameful appetites will be dismissed if we walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. If we are willing to give ourselves to serving others rather than serving selves, the pleasure will be squashed. And the desire to do, if we would channel the doing into serving God. In the lust of the eyes, if we were not worried about materialism, not worried about the appearance that we give to others, not worrying about the possessions that we can accumulate, not worrying about all that we can have but what we can give this fruit will be squashed and in the pride of life if we would really realize that our motives are to serve God and not others if we would come to the conclusion that it's all about him and not about us that we're not worrying about the applause of man we're only worrying about the one day standing before our maker who says well done thou good and faithful servant we're living to please him it's not about my power. It's about acknowledging His. It's not about a desire to be for me. It's a desire to be for Him, an example, a testimony of His goodness. But really all stems in walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Here's the culmination of it all in verses 16 and 17. It says this, for all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. There are only two things that span the test of time. We've said it many times. The souls of men and the Word of God. Those are the things that we should be investing in, not the things of this world. First Corinthians tells us that everything that this, that's in this world will be tried by fire. And verse 17 says, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 
If we invest in the things that this world has to offer, we're going to be sorely disappointed one day. Where are we investing? In what are we investing? Who are we living for? Who controls us? Hopefully we're not adding fertilizer to the orchard of desires. Hopefully all of us will take a note to say, hey, I need to go out and do some weeding. I need to squash these things so that they don't take root and grow greater in my life. I need to push down the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life so that this orchard does not take control and flourish in my life.